All right. Good morning, Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. It's great to be in God's house this morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I hope that you find this to be a place where you can um, explore uh, your next step with God, whatever that happens to be. And all of us are basically there. We're, we're in the process of, of just trying to understand God. And uh, some may be here who don't even believe God exists, and that's okay. Uh, we're going to help you understand why uh, our lives have been changed and maybe answer some questions. And, and today may be one of the, I, always, I say this every week, um, this is probably one of the most important sermons you'll hear. Um, and uh, it's kind of hard because every week I'm teaching God's truth, so they're all important. But, but last week we talked about this passage in Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 through 24. And I hope you picked up, or we'll pick up the notes that are out in the lobby as well as there's uh, bookmarks still out there. So um, we've been looking at this passage all week. I asked you last week to spend time meditating on this passage, to look at what you see, to, to begin to pay attention to what's there. And last week, if you missed it, I really encourage you to go online because we studied the great state of Texas. Yeah, it was incredible. And we, we studied the Battle of the Alamo and we studied how... William Travis put a line in the sand and he told them they needed to know which, which side they stand on. And I said, that's what Jesus has done in this passage. It's a line in the sand. And we have to decide where we stand. We spent a lot of time looking at this passage, um, noticing things that repeat, noticing lists, noticing verb tenses, all those kind of things we looked at. Now my slides aren't working. Stand by. Okay. Anyway, we learned about the great state of Texas, and Paul is telling the believers at Colossae, I'm sorry, hang on just a minute. Not sure why this is misbehaving, but it'll. It's misbehaving. Lamar would say it's misbehaving because it's a Windows computer. <sighs> I happen to have paper. All right. Now, Paul is telling the believers at Colossae, and he's telling all of us, this is who Jesus is. There are no questions. There's no comparisons. If you change anything, you're worshiping someone else. So, so that's what I want you to remember from, if you remember nothing else today, God gets to decide who he is. He reveals to us who he is. He doesn't ask our opinion. He doesn't ask us whether we like it or not. This is who he is. Take him or leave him. More importantly, if you change Jesus at all, then you're going to depend on someone else to save you. Jesus is who he is. He remains who he is. He doesn't change based on our opinion or belief about him. He was who he is and he will be who he is long before we were ever born and long after we're gone. He, he never changes. He is who he says he is. In fact, he's the one that even allows you to have an opinion about him. Now, Paul's worried about false teachers. He clearly draws a line in the sand. Move or change the line. Believe anything other than this, and you don't know Jesus at all. And your salvation is worthless. You're worshiping an idol. You're worshiping a form or a, a, a version of Jesus that you're more comfortable with. But that's not who he says he is. 
And so we've got to make sure if there's one thing we get right every time, this is who Jesus is. It's unwavering. We will not change from it. Take it or leave it. That's what this passage is about. Now, the year is 60 to 64 AD. Paul is under house arrest in Rome, if you remember. He's preaching the gospel. He's receiving guests. He's, he's writing letters. And a man named Paul, or a man named Epaphras, came to him and started telling him about these believers in this place called Colossae, a church that he planted in three cities. They all came together, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. And, and he was so convincing to Paul, he told him so much about these believers in Colossae that Paul felt like he should write a letter to them to encourage them, to challenge them. So what was wrong in Colossae? What was so wrong that Paul felt like, I've got to write to these people I don't even know? Well, what was wrong in a nutshell, they were being encouraged to redraw the line. They were being encouraged to change what God had said about himself, to believe something that wasn't true. They wanted a Jesus that was more comfortable to them. Now, Colossae had served as the center for wool and textile industries. It had been on a major trade route. But by the time of Paul, this city had waned in importance. It had become a little city in almost nowhere. The big economic center had become Hierapolis. But Hierapolis became a, a big city because it was a holy city for the mystery worship cult. So in this city, people came from all over to worship this mysterious cult, this Phrygian cult. There were mineral baths. There were things in Hierapolis. And Hierapolis means holy city in Greek. And so this city was growing and God's people were beginning to be influenced by what was going on around them. I think we can identify with that. It had been this center, and now it's rather kind of an unimpressive town. And this is a really small congregation in the middle of nowhere, that not even on the trade route, and yet Paul writes to them. He was writing to these early believers. Jewish believers had, had a concern. Not only were they being bombarded by false teaching, by false folks from outside the church, there was a struggle within the church of what do we do as Jewish people? Do I have to follow the Jewish rules and the laws and the, all, all the things that are laid down in the law if I'm a Gentile before I can follow Jesus? In other words, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, yet he came for the whole world. Do I have to be Jewish? Do I have to follow the Jewish rules and laws to be saved? So there's a lot of pressures going on in these churches. A lot of questions about dietary restrictions and, and religious traditions of Judaism and, and what they would have to do. And do they depend on the Jewish tradition for their salvation or do they depend on the work of Jesus Christ through faith? This was all a big struggle within every new church, but particularly in the smaller churches that were off the trade routes. There were three primary false teachings going on. One was that God didn't create the world, that, that he had nothing to do with the creation of the world. Second, God didn't enter the world as a human. And third, Jesus was not the only way to the Father. Now, it's a good thing, a really great thing, that Paul took care of this in the first century so we don't have to deal with these things today. Oh, yeah, that is what we're dealing with today. 
Satan never changes his tactics. They're always the same. God didn't create the world. God didn't enter the world. Jesus isn't the only way. Seriously, though, Paul could have written this letter to us. What threatens your view of Jesus today? What causes you to think of Jesus less than he actually is? We live in a culture that has dethroned Jesus. It's that simple. He has clearly said who he is. He has clearly made the claims he's going to make in this passage. And we said, yeah, but yeah, all right, that's cool, but we don't believe it. If the world is right about Jesus, he's just another choice. Another religious choice in the buffet line of religions. Pick some of them if you want. Pick something else if you want. He, he's probably the best man that ever lived. He, he probably identifies pretty well as a good guy to follow. No more than just another prophet offering us another way to get to God. Our society is full of the same teachings and false teachers then and today don't deny Jesus. They just change him. And in the process, they deny him. Jesus, they try to dethrone. In every way, they try to make him less than who he claimed to be. That he's not preeminent, maybe he's just prominent. He's not the way to the Father, maybe he's just one of the ways to the Father. We live in a world full of churches and false religions that have redrawn God's line in the sand. We've created a new Jesus. We, we, many churches are worshiping Jesus 2.0. A Jesus that we can control. A Jesus that we can feel better about. Yeah, we know that he claimed to do this, but this is what he really meant. A Jesus that's who we want. And a Jesus who can be part of our lives and still allow us to worship us. You see, because what we really want is we want to be God. And so if we can change Jesus to, to take any position other than that, he can join us in our journey in the worship of us. So Paul tells us Jesus is preeminent. He's in first place in everything. He created it all. Everything reports to him. All things are made by him and through him, and he holds everything together. Nothing exists, including you and me, unless he says so. If he stopped thinking of you and me, we would cease to exist. Word tells us Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and there's no name under heaven through which we can be saved. He's like no other human that ever walked the earth. He's the one who created us, gives us breath, holds everything together, saved us on the cross, guides us today, and one day will return to judge us and every soul, including yours and mine. He's the only thing in the universe that deserves our worship, and he has the right to command it. This passage explains the most important aspect of Christianity. The teachings of this passage are what make Christianity the one and only true religion, the only way to be saved, not some form of philosophy, not some way of life. Was Jesus a great example to follow? Absolutely. A great teacher? Absolutely. The best. You could turn his teachings into a philosophy. Absolutely, you could. See, a great friend, better than you could ever ask for. Not just willing to die for you, but he actually did it. 
We can understand who Jesus is if we make Jesus out to be who he is and not just some glorified self-help Oprah-endorsed guru or a model for our behavior, a model for social change, perhaps. And when we do that, we settle for him less than who he really is. The false teachings of our day, all world religions have fallen short in their understanding of who Jesus really is. The line in the sand has been drawn and many are standing on the wrong side. And a lot are trying to straddle it. Every so-called Christ follower who still sees Jesus as a spiritual guide is lost. Every pastor who teaches that Jesus is one of many ways to be saved is lost. Every cult that declares that Jesus is less than God, any group that says Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah, anyone who makes Jesus less than God has failed to understand who Jesus is. Making him less than the God he claimed to be is called blasphemy. Making Jesus something other than God Failure to worship him first, failure to make him first in your life breaks the first three commandments just like that. So it's important that we get our view of Jesus right. If the line in the sand shifts, if it doesn't represent who Jesus really, really is, if the line in the sand doesn't represent God's revelation of himself to man, then we're doomed. Because everything hinges on who Jesus is. Everything. If he's anything less than creator God, then his death on the cross means nothing. His ability to save us futile. We either get Jesus right or we get everything else wrong. And Paul knew that if we get Jesus right, everything else follows. Any teaching that claims that Jesus is anything other than completely divine, holy, fully God is a false teaching and a cult no matter what's on the sign out front. It includes every religion on earth, even the ones we haven't thought of yet. There are religions not yet established that will deny Jesus. What we think about Jesus explains why we're here today. Why are we here today gathered in Jesus' name? Just to learn from his teachings, just to look at some great man who lived, just to try to be more like him? No. We're not here to admire him or remember him. We're created to worship him. And when this passage sinks in, when you stop and really pay attention to what God is going to show us, our response is to fall on our faces. We know we're unworthy to be in his presence. We know we're unworthy to worship him. He is God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. As that sinks in, you find yourself surrendered in worship. And when you hear about who Jesus really is, if you're not drawn to fall in worship, you've probably moved the line. So as we've been studying this passage, as the Holy Spirit has guided me through the content and the context, I want to talk today about seven things that Paul tells us. Undeniable truths about Jesus Christ. These points never move. It's like the line in the sand is made up of seven points. And they all connect in a line, and none of them can move, because if one of them moves, the line has changed. The first one I want to look at, Jesus is God of everything. 
Jesus is God of everything. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh, the very image of God in all his fullness. This is so critical to understand and to believe without wavering. When we see Jesus, we don't just see a godly person, we see God himself. Jesus is God. It's an undeniable truth. Jesus was not just sent to us by God. He is God. He is in human form. He walked the world showing us who God really is. He made it very clear that when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. You were looking at God the Father and they're the same. John 14, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. As a son, Jesus is relationally subject to the will of the Father, but he's not any less God. Notice that Jesus says, but the Father who dwells in me, not the Father who sent me, not a child of the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We are one. I am the image of the invisible God. Translated, I am God. Jesus was not born of man. He was not conceived the way you and I were. If he'd been born of man, he'd been born with the same sin nature that you and I have. He'd have been doomed from the moment he was, the moment he was born. Yes. Yeah, he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, most of what we know about God is invisible to us. It's a spiritual thing. We don't fully know him, okay? At times, God presented himself in a way that we could recognize that he's God. But he never fully reveals himself in those moments. He, he meets us sort of on our level, shows us this God that's in heaven, shows us a God that is beyond anything we can comprehend, but at times, he walks. And once sin came into the world... Up until the time Jesus returns, he couldn't walk with us anymore. So when Paul is writing, what he's saying is he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, there's a whole spiritual kingdom. There's a, there's a God in heaven, and he's so much bigger than anything we can imagine. We haven't seen him because we can't stand in his glory. If we saw him, we'd drop dead. Jesus came in human form to show us the attributes, the characteristics of God in a way we could understand. Yes. The Holy Spirit is on earth. God. Yes. So the answer is yes. I believe that. All right. So he's the image of the invisible God. As the son, Jesus is relational to the father, but they're in one and the other. He could not have done anything to save us if he'd been born in flesh nature because he wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. He had to be born of the spirit. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Not just some cool thing to make his birth more spectacular, 
Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The best way to think about this, in my opinion, is that God entered the womb of a young girl and produced a body that he would use during his mission on earth. He was completely human, but he was also completely God. He was God in human form. John said it this way, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's critical to understand that if Jesus was just a human, we can admire him, we can imitate him, we can sing his praises, but we can't worship him. And he can do nothing to save us or ourselves. Since Jesus is God, he alone can speak as God. A prophet may speak for God, but Jesus is God and his words are the very words of God. Jesus is the only human who ever walked on the earth who was God. He never claimed to be anything else. He is God. Take it or leave it. You can't change it. It's a point in the sand. I am God. Not only did he make the claim, he backed the claim up. He did things only God could do. He raised dead people. He told the storms like a rambunctious child to be calm. Demons knew what we still debate. They knew he was God. They knew they were subject to him. We don't worship Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius. They never claimed to be God. They were humans like the rest of us, created by Jesus, held in existence by Jesus and judged by Jesus. One point in the sand that can never change For anybody who truly wants to follow the one true God is that Jesus is God. It's not debated. It's not questioned. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, the New Testament, Jesus clearly claimed to be God. If you take that away, you're worshiping somebody else. Second thing, we learn in this passage, Jesus is the firstborn of everything. Another point in the sand. He is God. He's the firstborn of everything. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Interesting that in this passage, Paul makes this claim twice. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And yet, he's always existed. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God. He's always existed. He always will exist. So what does it mean to be the firstborn? How do I explore this truth? We'll soon learn in this series how to take a specific word. I'm going to teach you how to look it up in Greek and Hebrew without freaking everybody out and understand the original meaning of this word, firstborn. But today, I want to share with you what firstborn means. Many cults try to take this verse out of context and teach that Jesus was the first human being created by God. The Mormons teach that God of the universe was once man in another universe that became God. They teach that Jesus was the first person created by God and Lucifer was the second. That God and Satan were actually, or Jesus and Satan were actually brothers. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was not God at all, but rather God's first creation. They equate him with the archangel Michael. 
But the word, hold on a minute, but the word that Paul uses here is prototokos. It's a Greek word. It most often is used to denote a position of standing, not an order of birth. It means the idea of supremacy. The one upon whom all honor and position falls, the firstborn in their culture was not so much about birth order, it was about authority and power. And so in this, in the Jewish culture, it represented the one who had the blessing. In many families, the firstborn was a woman, but they weren't allowed to carry the title of being the firstborn. It always meant firstborn son, not just firstborn. So when we see firstborn in the Old Testament and New Testament, it represents position, power, authority, and carries with it the idea of supremacy. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Hebrews verse one, or chapter 1, verse 6 and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. The most honored son was the firstborn. The most honor given to him. Most of the time, the honor was given to the actual firstborn son. But do you remember Joseph? You remember the story of Joseph and the coat and all? He was the greatest son, but he wasn't the first one born. You remember David, King David? He was the greatest son, but he was the youngest son. Israel was given the right of inheritance of a nation, but it was not the first nation and not even the greatest nation. Firstborn does not mean first out of the womb. Firstborn means the one with whom all the authority and power has been given. Now it turns out that Jesus is not only God's firstborn, but his only son. He's the one given the highest honor by the Father. When Paul says that Jesus is the prototokos, the firstborn of all creation, he's saying that Jesus is given the highest honor of all the people who've ever been created. Jesus has all the honor of the firstborn. So God tells us through Paul that, that he is the firstborn of creation. He also says he's the firstborn of the dead. Jesus is both first in time and first in preeminence. He's the first to be raised from the dead. He's the first to show us the new era that Jesus is ushering in through his death and resurrection. What he's saying is, look, he's the firstborn, the highest honor of all creation, and he has the highest honor of anybody that's ever been resurrected, anybody that has died. He has the highest honor. So God through Paul tells us the first two dots in the sand. He's God and he's firstborn over everything. He is the most honored of anything ever created. Third thing, he's the creator of everything. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created. In heaven, earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all said to be creators in Scripture. All things were created by him and for him, but Jesus was not created. Jesus is God. 
He's always existed. Any attribute of God is found in Jesus. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all one. I'm probably going to answer it. Hang on just one minute. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always and will always exist. They were never created. They will never end. I can't stress enough the importance of this. Let me walk you through it, then I'll get to your question. The second person of the Trinity. Remember the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three, all one God. The second person of the Trinity that we call Son. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The second person of the Trinity always existed. Always. All things were created by Him. The Son never had a beginning, never had an end. Okay? In all the years, throughout all of time, long before the second person of the Trinity created us, He existed. Okay? Now, I know that I'm making a picky, critical point, but you have to know this. This is where many false teachers lead believers to worship a God that's not God. God the Father did not produce God the Son. They've always existed with the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Always. There was a time in human history that in order to save His creation... God had to become human. He had to spend 33 years in human form. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, the God of all time in the past and to come, chose to step down from his throne, go into the womb of a young girl, and take on a human body for his mission on earth for 33 years. He was going to take our place as a perfect substitute for the punishment of sin that he himself had to dish out. He's holy and righteous. We had to be punished for 33 years. He came to earth, lived in human form, still remained his Godhead, lived a perfect life, and then took the punishment from him that we deserved. For those very brief 33 years, the second person of the Trinity lived as a God-man. Fully God, fully man. He walked with and saved his creation. The human body given to God for his mission on earth housed the second person of the Trinity and received the human name of Jesus at God's command. While Jesus was a human born to Mary and Joseph, he was never conceived by them. He was born spiritually conceived by the Holy Spirit. False teachers will often interchange the name of Jesus with the name of the second person of the Trinity, but that was only true for 33 years. The second person of the Trinity has always existed, created everything, made everything, will always exist, the Son. But for 33 years, he walked on earth as a human who was named Jesus. Jesus, the human, was left in the tomb. The second person of the Trinity resurrected. We call him the resurrected Jesus. And he is now on his throne in heaven, just as he promised, and will return one day 
to judge mankind. Since Jesus is the creator of the universe, he alone is to be worshiped. It makes no sense to worship something that man created. Paul says it this way, therefore God gave him up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They moved the mark and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Jesus is God. Jesus is the firstborn, the highest honor. Jesus created everything. What was your question? All the same God. No, the, all three are God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three are God. God exists in three forms. He's God. So when, I don't know, if you wrap your mind around the Trinity, it takes a while. They're not three separate gods. They're all one God representing attributes of God. Okay, so when Jesus speaks, Jesus, second person of the Trinity is God. When the Holy Spirit teaches you the Bible, you're learning from God. God the Father is in heaven, taking on fatherly roles. So the way of looking at it is, this is not a good example. And no one's ever come up with a good example. Okay? But I'm one person, right? I'll still even use that one. Um, some people will use water, exists as ice, steam, and a liquid, but it's all water. It's not a good example. The real reality is we don't have words in human existence to explain the essence of God. But basically the answer is, is that God exists in three persons that we call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All are equally God, all are equally uh, empowered by God, all have different roles, but all carry all the attributes of God, okay? And so we learn that um, at, at uh, in Genesis, at creation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all together. When Jesus came out of the water at baptism, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all together. When we get to Revelation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will all be together. And so God has tried to reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand. Because the truth is, if God really showed us all of who he is, our little pea brains would just go, okay? So he has revealed to us a way that we can understand. There are, I don't want to use the word roles because then it sounds like one of them does something the other one doesn't do. That's not true. But God exists in uh, a single entity that exists in three persons. And we can go into that later and I'll cover the Trinity many times, but it is hard to wrap your mind around because it's not a human concept, it's a spiritual concept. The next point that we want to understand is that Jesus owns everything. Jesus owns everything. Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. By him, all things are created in heaven, earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He owns everything. The truth alone, that, just, that could transform your life if you finally embrace that truth. When you begin to realize that Jesus owns everything, you realize that whatever you think you own, you're just using because he allowed you to have it. He gave it to you. You and I have what we think we own, 
what we think we've accomplished, what we think we deserve, for one reason and one reason only, Jesus has allowed us to keep those things for him. We're used to what God has let us borrow for his purposes, not ours. We, we tend to think that we own, that we hold on, that things are ours. Jesus is allowing us to keep those things for him. We're to use what God has let us borrow for his purposes, not ours. There's nothing that we've ever earned without him. Let me share a story with you. When I first became a believer, I had a man in my life that was my mentor. Um, I'd come back to the faith. I'd walked away from God for 18 years. And when I came back, one day he sat me down and he said, I, I can't keep meeting with you. And I thought, of course, because I've graduated. I don't have anything to learn. He can't meet with me because he's running out of things to tell me. And he said, no, I can't meet with you because you're obnoxious. <laughs> and I'm tired of listening to it. Every time you talk about what God's done in your life, you take credit for it. I'm sick of it. I can't stand it. it drives me crazy. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you went to medical school. Yep. Graduated. Yep. He said, why'd you go to medical school? I said, well... Because I'm smart. Because <laughs> I worked hard. He said, no, you were born into a middle class, upper middle class family that highly valued education. God put you in a place where you could succeed. You then went to school where God gave you the ability to understand things. And he gave you the perseverance and the, the things to hold on to. And then he helped you every step along the way. Every time you made a decision, God was right there with you because he was working out the plan in your life. You see, the whole thing you were doing, you, were, you think you were doing it, but honestly, you were just making it more difficult to God for God. He says, you take credit for all kinds of things you never did. You, you've totally discredited God in your life. The things you own, the things you've done, you think that you work for those and you deserve those. He allows you to have them and you're totally not giving him any credit for it. You're so full of yourself, there's no room for God anymore. Now, I'll tell you, uh, I highly value people who are willing to speak truth because it forces you to stop and listen. It took me a while to realize that I wasn't all I thought I was. And as long as I kept thinking I was all I thought I was, then there wasn't any room for God to be on the throne of my life because I was already there. Tammy will tell you that I was probably one of the most arrogant. There are words I could use that I can't use on stage. Which just goes to show she's an incredible woman because I really was the most arrogant doctor I've ever met. Um, and God took a hold of me and basically, how dare you take my place in your life? We have to understand that he owns everything. You see, we live like little kids that have a death grip on our candy. Have you ever, those of you who are parents, you've done this before. Your kids, they get some candy. And you tell them, hey, can I have, like we had this rule at Halloween, okay? There's a Halloween tithe. I don't know if you know this or not. Many of you are going, oh my gosh. You let your kids do Halloween, you're a pastor. It was okay. We, we managed it in a way that was God-honoring. But there's a tithe. And when the kids go out to get their candy, the tithe is in Snickers bars. Snickers bars are first fruit. They're set apart for God. 
In this case, the father of the family. So our kids had to tithe Snickers. And every once in a while, they would hold on to them or try to hide them. And they would give me this look like it's mine, it's all mine. And I'm sitting there thinking, I could fill your room up with Snickers bars. I could go order and tomorrow a truck could come and fill this place up with Snickers bars. You've got seven of them, I just want one. And we sit there and look, oh, you can't have it, these are mine. That's what we do with God. You've given me all this stuff, but it's mine, God, don't dare ask for it back. And he's like, I could load you up till the cows come. I could fill your house, I could fill your neighborhood. I could drop that stuff from the sky and you could drown in it. The story in the Old Testament where the people got tired of eating manna. God gave them so much beef that they got nauseated. So we have to understand that everything you see, everything you've ever owned, you're just holding for God. God calls it stewardship. He talks about it often. What have you done with all that I've given to you? How have you used your life today? That breath you're taking, that's from me. That opportunity you have to go help, that was for me. What what are you doing with what I've given you? How do you use what I've entrusted to you today? Did you use what I gave you for your glory or for mine? Are you worshiping you or me with the things I've given for you to trust? When the Son of God looks out from the throne in heaven, there's nothing he can't claim as mine. It's all his, not selfishly his, wonderfully his. Everything is his. He created it all by him, through him, and for him. Everything is to be used as he deems appropriate for his purposes. There's nothing created that will or cannot be used as Jesus deems fit to carry out his purposes and will on earth, including you and everything you have. If God is allowing something, he's using it to fulfill his purposes and to bring glory to him. He can do what he wants, when he wants, without asking you or me for permission. And honestly, he does not care about our opinion. He's here to fulfill his purpose on earth. He owes us no explanation. He made decisions long before we were ever born and figured out how to have an opinion. He already decided what was going to happen in the world. The events that would bring him the most glory and save the most people that he loves. If God decides that our life must end today, or a child's life must end today, or someone we love's life must end today, then it's going to end today. Somehow that event is best. Best for the things of God, for his purpose. We don't get explanations. We love and trust him in faith based on what we know to be true about him. Everyone at the Alamo knew the line and knew what the line meant. They knew where they stood and they died there. Their mission was more important than their lives and they knew it. He is God. He's the firstborn of creation. He's a creator of all things. He owns all things. It's all his, for his purpose to use as he wants. Fifth thing is, he's the sustainer of everything. He 
He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. By him, all things are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I spent a lot of time with scientists, reading, talking, trying to understand things, and it's actually funny because they all run into the same problem and they don't know what to do. I want us to play a game that I call, and where did that come from? Okay, so when I point to you, you just say, but where did that come from? Okay, all right. For instance, someone comes in with high blood sugar. Where did that come from? Well, their body doesn't make enough insulin. Well, it turns out insulin is a hormone, a peptide hormone. Well, they're made up of atoms that form a structure. Well, they're created by DNA that transcribes the code inside of a cell in the pancreas. Well, it turns out that those DNA molecules are a code to make an atom that makes a peptide. Where does that come from? Well, that peptide goes into a beta cell that's in the pancreas. That beta cell makes insulin the peptide hormone that contradicts or counteracts the sugar we eat. Where does the DNA come from? Well, it's actually a double helix of material bound together through bonds. Well, there are attractions through polar opposites that are held together by a force. Well, we're not sure. <laughs> you see, we don't know. There's some force holding everything together, but we haven't identified it yet. And I'm like, I have, because I've read Colossians chapter one. In him, all things hold together. The force that holds, it all holds together. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. And so that no human might be boasting in the presence of God. In him, all things hold together. If you watch anything, they'll talk about how there are atoms and then the atoms are held together by this and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and they eventually get to the point of we don't know. This entire universe, subatomic particles are being held together by an energy, a force. What is that? Physicists disagree, but scripture says it's God. If they discover that those little bitty subparticles are held together by even smaller little bitty subparticles, guess who's holding those together? It'll be God. Jesus is God. He is the firstborn. He created it all. He owns it all. He sustains it all. And he's preeminent over everything. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things are created in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. A church that does not believe in the Bible is not guided by, not guided by Jesus, who's the author of the Bible. A church that does not teach and preach the Bible is not being the mouth of Jesus. A church that does not witness to the lost and hurting is not letting the head guide it. It can be hard sometimes 
to tell if a church has been decapitated. If the church has cut Jesus out, you can look really spiritual. You can worship all kinds of things, but there are many churches that have been decapitated. The head of the church no longer is there, and more importantly, wouldn't be welcome there if he actually really showed up because they've convinced everybody he's something else. It's like a chicken with his head cut off. A lot of activity in the short run, but no life. Jesus started the church. He's the originator and the operator of the church. He began it and he's building it. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice who's building the church. People ask me a lot, why aren't these seats full? Well, because God hasn't decided they should be yet. When will they be full? When he decides people need to be here and we represent Christ in a way that attracts them to come see him. You didn't build the church, I didn't build the church. Great programming, not pretty buildings, not clever marketing. Jesus builds the church through us. He uses us and have no doubt he's the one putting his church together. The rest of Colossians hinges on this truth. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He not only started the church, but he's the first of those who have resurrected who will be with the Father. And then it says that he might be preeminent. And then we go, well, wait a minute. What's that about? Might be. We better dig deeper into this word. The might in this verse does not imply doubt, but rather realization and revelation. In other words, it would be better translated, and he will fully become, or he will fully be realized. The verse speaks of might as a not yet fully realized truth. It says that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay? Now, not based on who he is, but how long it takes man to figure out who he is. You see, when somebody's preeminent, it's because man has decided that he holds that position, okay? Jesus is always in charge. He's always the highest honor, but not all men recognize it. He is preeminent. We just haven't fully acknowledged it yet. It will be fulfilled in the future, not based on who he is, but how long it takes us to understand who he is. Philippians 2.7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. In other words, there's a day coming when every human being who's ever lived will fall on their face and acknowledge that Jesus is preeminent. It may be too late for them, but they acknowledge that he's preeminent. So that the word might here does not mean that he's not. It means that not everybody has recognized it yet. And then the last point in our line, he's the reconciler of everything. Verse 19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What does it mean to be reconciled? It means to find peace where there once was conflict. To have a relationship turn from stormy to calm. To be in the presence of others and to be at total peace. When you're reconciled with someone, everything's good. When you're not reconciled with someone, there's conflict, there's angst, there's struggle. Jesus reconciles us with God. He does so for us, our peace. God says through Paul, comes through his blood in him through the fullness of God and was pleased to dwell through him. And he reconciles all things to himself, all things in heaven and on earth. Jesus is saying, what they're saying here is, look, he came to earth on a mission and the mission was to fix your relational problem with the father because of your sin. He's going to take that which is in conflict, your relationship with the father, your relationship because of your sin, and he's going to reconcile you so that you can be at peace in the presence of the father. You will no longer feel conflicted when you think about God. You'll feel accepted and loved because I have reconciled you. I'm on a mission of reconciliation to take the relationship that was stormy and to bring it into a place where it can be calm. We were once alienated and hostile in mind and deeds towards God, and some still are. Our relationship with God is strained because of our sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. The price for what we've done is too high to be paid. Suppose I owe somebody a million dollars, and I truly owe them. It's a real debt. We both acknowledge I owe Linda a million dollars. Lucky Linda. Not really, because I won't pay it. Um, I can never pay it back. I just can't. No matter what I do, I can't come up with the money to pay Linda. How's our relationship going to be every time I see her? Not going to be good. We could fake it. We could act at church like we're getting along. But what she knows is I owe her a debt. And what I know is I owe her a debt. And our relationship won't be together until we solve the debt right? And that debt is far more than I can do. On my best day, I just can't give her a million dollars. I don't have it. Because of our sins, we have a relationship with God that's broken and we can't pay that back either. We don't like to think about it. That's why these chairs are empty. It's really true. We really don't want to think about God because we know we owe him. And we know that we owe him because deep down inside of us, there's some kind of thing going on that tells us that we've let down a holy God. And so what we try to do is to do what we know to do. We try to do good things. Well, I'll start going to church. I'll give money to this cause. I'll serve in this place. I'll, I'll, I'll do something that makes me feel less guilty about this relationship we have. So if I gave Linda, let's say $10,000, the next time I see her, I might not feel so bad. But the problem is, until I pay it completely back, we still got problems. I may feel better about our problems, but I haven't solved them. We don't like to think about the fact that we owe the Father a debt. So we just don't come. 
We stay away from all things God. We stay away from church. We stay away from the scriptures. And I told you before, I I didn't read the scriptures because I knew they'd tell me to do things I didn't want to do. Because of our sins, we have a relationship with God that's broken and we know it. That's why Adam and Eve covered themselves. Something's wrong. The relationship has changed. I can't be at peace with God in the garden anymore. I need to run and hide because I know my shame. And as humans, we try to fix everything. I'll just be better. I'll just do more. I'll follow the Ten Commandments. I'll do this and this. But the problem is our nature doesn't allow us to do that. The difference between being alienated from God, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds, and being holy, blameless, and above reproach with God is purely our understanding of who Jesus is, why he came, and what we believe about him. This is the weird thing. When you begin to notice these seven dots and the line, and you commit yourself that that line in your life can never change, and you're going to believe every one of those points until the day you die, and you will fight to defend those points, and you'll never let them change because Jesus is who he says he is. When you take that step of faith, all of a sudden something happens inside, and you find yourself at peace with God. And you find yourself drawn to God. And you want to be in the presence of God, even though you know you're a sinner. Even though you know you've done things that are wrong. Even though you know you can never pay the debt. Because of your faith in who Jesus says he is, the relationship gets reconciled. It's a perfect list. God telling us who he is. Each point in the sand unmovable. Each line drawn not by man, but by God himself. God is basically saying in this passage, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. But don't you dare try to move the line. Don't you dare try to make me something I'm not in order for you to feel better. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him, and he's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I told you guys when we started this passage last week that if I had one passage to show people who Jesus is, this is it. He created us. He guides us. He'll resurrect us in the future. So we as a church, are like a spiritual fort in a spiritual battle. We're in our own Alamo. We live or die, we have to decide where we stand. The line's clear and it's not moving. False teachers are bombarding us like cannons from the army of Mexico. Coming around seem to never cease. It seems at times we're surrounded by false teachers. And what they say is, agree with us and the bombing will stop. Change who you are so you're not offensive to us. And when you do that, more people will embrace who you are and your church will grow. 
And the problem with that is that might be a church, but I don't know whose it is because it's not Jesus. Surrender to our truth, the world says. Submit to our way of seeing life. Yet we just keep looking down at the line in the sand. The truth that God has laid out for us. Every person has a decision to make about who Jesus says he is. Every person. Paul's been very clear. So the obvious question is, where are you? Do you know where you stand? Are you hostile in mind doing evil deeds against God, broken in relationship with him? Or are you securely with him and blameless and at peace with God through the blood of Christ on the cross? That's the question for everybody. Where are you today? The line is drawn. The cannons are firing. It could cost you your life. You have to know where you stand. And some people in this room and some people hear my voice online, you know you need to step across the line. It's a step of faith. You can't straddle it. Maybe you thought it was enough to have Jesus prominent in your life, and now you realize he has to be preeminent. Maybe you want him as a savior, but not your Lord. You want what he offers you. You want salvation, but you really don't want him to be Lord of your life because then he would take your position and you don't want to give it up yet. You want what he offers, but not what he commands. You want what he tells you about you, but you don't want to accept what he tells you about him. You flirted with the line, maybe never really crossed it. Maybe you're straddling it. But Jesus, it requires that you're all in. You're one way or the other. The Texans were slaughtered at the Alamo. Every one of them gave their lives for a cause greater than themselves. They never heard the battle cry based on their sacrifice and courage. Two months later at the Battle of San Jacinto, when Texas won its independence, the battle cry was, remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. At San Jacinto, the Texans destroyed the army of Mexico. We fight a battle today. And our battle cry is not remember the Alamo. Our battle cry is remember Colossians 1. Never forget who Jesus says he is. Never look at the world to tell you who Jesus is. He's already said it. Seven attributes that define who he is. We have to remember who Jesus is at all costs. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in your word, you, you tell us who you are. You reveal to us who you are. For decades and centuries, people have debated it, and yet it's your word. God, help us to stop trying to change you and just surrender to you. Help us to stop trying to excuse you to people that don't understand you and just stand firm for who you are. Because God, every time we try to clean you up, we take away your authority and power. And we take away the transformative power of your word. As a church, God, help us to always know where the line in the sand is. Help us to never waver no matter what the cost. God, you can use our lives for whatever purpose you want. You're preeminent. Everything is for you, through you, by you. You are God. 
Forgive us, God, when we try to make you something that you're not or worship a form of you that we've created that's not you. Help us, God, to never forget who you are and whose we are. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.